How are we doing today? You're all tired because you had those crazy neighbors blowing things up last night, right? How many of you realized last night that because there was no public display of fireworks that you had a neighbor that took it upon themselves to put on the best display in the state of Indiana? Anybody here? Okay. All right. Uh, my wife and I were headed back from Indianapolis. We were having dinner at a friend's house, and uh, I don't think I've ever seen that many fireworks going off as we were driving 74 back home. And uh, I'm like, oh, man, like, I guarantee, like, High Point, Central Park, like, dude, they're all going to be blown off stuff. Apparently, that's my opinion of people that live there. And, um, <laughs> so, so, sorry. So we're driving down McKay, and uh, two houses down from us, there's a dude with, like, 37 sheets of plywood on, on sawhorses in his front yard with all these mortar tubes and cakes. I'm just like, uh-oh. Like, I got to teach. Like, five is going to be so rough in the morning. Uh, and then he started lighting them off immediately, and it was like, thunk, boom, right? And you're just, oh, it's like somebody hits you in the chest with a bat. So uh, my wife is in bed next to me, and she's on her computer, and I'm trying to fall asleep, and I've got headphones. Like, yeah, it was bad. Anyway, um, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelbyville Community Church. Uh, we're in week three of Things I Wish Jesus Never Said, and I'm happy you came back after last week because I yelled at you. Um, <laughs> so, ready to get yelled at again? No. Perfect. So, uh, today what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at Jesus' very last sermon before he goes to the cross, all right? And uh, this particular message is called, uh, by a lot of scholars, the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives, all right? And so, uh, before we get into all of that stuff, uh, this sermon has a lot to do with waiting. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, if I have to wait longer than two days for a package, I get angry, right? Anybody else with me? Yes. Thank you, Amazon. You've ruined my life, right? So, as soon as COVID hit, and you're like, hey, I'm going to order something, and they're like, well, um, we're servicing these types of things, right? Your package will be here at the end of the month. You're like, dude, today's like the first, like I have to wait a whole month. Like, no. Waiting. When I think of waiting, and I've shared this story before, right, so I'm not going to hammer out all the details, but when I think of waiting, the story that comes to mind uh, was a car accident that my now wife was in. All right? This coming August marks 14 years uh, since she was in that really, really, really brutal car accident. Okay? And so every summer, uh, it's just kind of a, a season where I just think through, man, life would look very different if she was not alive, right? And I think a lot of us probably have situations like that or seasons that cause us to reflect, right? And so uh, this coming August will mark 14 years since she was in a car accident. She was uh, headed to her cousin's graduation party when she was T-boned by a pickup doing at least 55 on a country road. All right, she was hit on her driver's side in this like 1988 Volkswagen Jetta, all right? And it turned this thing into a pop can. Uh, and so the, the first responders that, that got there, they looked at this, they said, man, this is bad, right? And so they immediately called in for a helicopter. And they got her out with the, the jaws of life, and they get her in the helicopter, and they fly her to the hospital, and they're like, man, your blood pressure's super low. Like, we know that you're bleeding internally, but we don't know what's going on. And so uh, Theta Care, they open her up, right? And they realize that her spleen is in like a million pieces, and blood's just pouring out, right? And they were able to stop it. And they continue looking and they're diagnosing, trying to figure out what all happened, what kind of trauma came from this accident. And they're like, man, you broke all the ribs on the left side of her body. And she broke her pelvis and she broke her right leg. And she's got bleeding and swelling in her brain. 
And so uh, I am in Chicago, and I'm about to start uh, college. Um, I had uh, been to community college for a few years and uh, was moving on campus to Trinity, Trinity International University, and I'm standing in the finance office with my parents when I get this frantic phone call from Taylor's sister, Piper. And through all the, the tears and, like, the short breaths, I hear, Tay, Tay's hurt. Tay's in a, she's in a bad accident. And quickly the phone uh, leaves, and it's replaced by my now father-in-law. It's his voice, and, and he was, he's an RN. And he's a straight shooter, and he said, Craig, it doesn't look good. And so I, I hang up the phone, and I put it in my pocket, and my body's going numb, and I turn to my parents, and I'm like, man, like, Taylor was just in a really bad car accident. Like, I need to get to the hospital. And so we pay for the first semester of tuition, and, and we go to throw all my stuff in my dorm room, and I'm like, Mom, like, I have to go. Like, I need to get to the hospital. She's like, Craig, I'm not letting you drive yourself. You're going to kill yourself getting up there. And so we left the college and we drove to my parents' house so my mom could get a set of clothes and we made our way up to the hospital and that was the longest three-hour car ride of my life, mostly because my mom was driving, okay? <laughs> and we get to the hospital and uh, we walk in and, I mean, I, there was so much family, right? So many of Taylor's aunts and uncles and cousins and just friends and, and, and family, and so my mom and I walk into this waiting room, and they're like, hey, like, you can go in and you can see her, and so I went in with my now in-laws and with their pastor, and we stood, and there's my girlfriend, just motionless, and her chest is going up and down because of this machine next to her, and I'm just looking at this, and I'm just like, what? What the heck? And so I stayed at the hospital for the next five days with my mom and with Taylor's parents. And we slept at the Ronald McDonald house so we didn't have to leave. And those were the longest five days of my life. And hour by hour, I would just sit there and I'm thinking to myself, like, is she ever going to come out of this? Like, is she going to wake up? Is she going to be able to function? Like, is she going to remember who I am? Is she going to be Taylor? And so at the end of that fifth day, I had to go back to Chicago to start class. And so I left the hospital, and she was still in a coma. And it wasn't long after... I had been back, I got a phone call, and they said, hey, she woke up, and she's talking, but she doesn't really have a short-term memory. I said, okay. She's like, do you want to talk to her? I said, yeah, I want to talk to her. So I get on the phone, and I said, hey, you know, how are you doing? Said, well, I don't really remember. Said, what do you mean you don't remember? Like, how are you doing? Like, do you hurt? Oh, I feel okay. Well, what'd you do today? I don't, I don't know. I'm like, well, did you eat? I think so. 
but I, I don't remember. Like, what did you do? I don't remember. Like, she didn't even remember like 15 minutes ago, right? She had no idea what was going on. She had no idea that she had been in an accident. She had no idea what was going on, right? So she knew who I was, but she had no idea if we had talked or not. My school is three hours away from this hospital, right? And when you're in college, you're kind of broke. So the idea of driving to the hospital on a regular basis, it just wasn't feasible. And that was the longest month of my life. You see, waiting can be rough, can it? But waiting can be pretty sweet. You know, have you ever sat down around a campfire on a lake or on the back porch or by the mountains and just watch the sun set. You're like, I could sit here forever. I could wait here forever. I remember one time going to my sister's house and uh, she's got twin girls. And um, I remember one day uh, I got there pretty early and one of them came out from their bedroom and uh, they crawled up and they just wanted to snuggle with my sister. And she looked at me and she's like, man, I could do this forever. You see, waiting in itself is not inherently good or bad. It just is, right? But the way that we view that period of waiting, the way that we value that period of waiting, it changes based on the circumstances that are causing us to wait, right? So this morning as we dive into this last sermon, as we dive into the Olivet Discourse, as we look at the final words of Jesus to his disciples before he's going to the cross, there's some hard words in here. I'm just going to warn you, right? I've been sitting under this all week. So before we jump in, we need to pray, right? Because there is. There's some meat in here that we're going to have to chew on. There's some things that we're going to have to wrestle with that aren't going to be fun. But there's also some amazing news in this statement, right? So let's pray. Man, Jesus, so grateful for who you are, so grateful for what you're going to do. Grateful that I've been able to put my faith in you, that a lot of the folks in this room and the folks that are watching online uh, have put their faith in you. They trust you. They've got their salvation in you. This is good news. Jesus, I pray today that you would convict all of us those that would call ourselves followers and those that have not yet made a decision to follow you. I pray that you would convict all of us, that you would challenge all of us, and that we would walk away from hearing these words, better people, people that love you more, that want to lean into you more, that want to grow more. So today I pray that we would all uh, come to this passage with uh, open minds and a soft heart and a willingness to, to sit under the word of God this morning. I pray this. In the beautiful name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 24, all right, this is kind of where we're starting. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open up, we'll be actually start looking through stuff in Matthew 25. But in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is with his disciples, and he's talking to them, and they say, hey, you've talked about how you're going to get crucified, how you're going to raise from the dead, and you've talked about the fact that you're going to return, but can you give us a little insight on what that's going to look like? And so Jesus is sitting, and he's preparing his disciples, and he's telling them, hey, here's what you need to be looking forward to. And so he says, believe it or not, the temple is going to be destroyed, right? And this was a huge deal to Jews in that day, right? Because the temple was everything. And he says, you know what? The temple is going to be destroyed. 
that there's not even a, a stone that won't be moved. And then he says, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to come and they're going to claim that they're the Messiah. But don't fall for it, right? You know who I am, that I am the Messiah, right? They're going to come and they're going to tell you all these things and they're going to try and convince you that they are the Messiah. Don't, don't believe them. Don't fall into it. He says, you know, there's going to be a lot of war. There are going to be nations that rise and fall, empires that are going to collapse. There's going to be a lot of natural disaster. But all of these things are just birth pains. This isn't the actual event. It's going to be like the days of Noah when he's building his boat, right? And he's working on this thing and all of the people around him are just living life, right? They're eating, they're drinking, they're getting married. And then the rain starts and the floods come. He says it's going to be really, really sudden. But it's just going to be a normal everyday day that I return. Then he tells his disciples something that probably confused them. He said, you know what? Nobody knows the day or the time that I'm going to come back. Not the angels in heaven, not even me, but only the Father. Now imagine being one of the disciples that sat under the teaching of this man, that's witnessed the ministry of this man, watched the miracles of this man. Imagine sitting with him and hearing him say, I've done all of this, I know all of this, but I have no idea when I'm coming back. I think that would kind of challenge my view a little bit. What do you mean you don't know when you're coming back? And so Jesus, in this sermon, goes on to tell a bunch of parables and metaphorical stories to help his disciples kind of understand what's going to happen and how life is going to look and how they are to live in light of his return, right? And since Jesus hasn't come back, this is just as applicable to us as it was to them, right? You see, throughout his ministry, Jesus would use these parables, these metaphorical stories to explain things. His goal was to get these stories to lodge in your brain, right? Like getting a tiny stone in your shoe that you always know is there, right? That was his goal. I'm going to tell you these stories that represent uh, theological things, spiritual things. And unfortunately, we don't have time to dig into all of it, right? There's a lot of ground to cover. But I would highly recommend, jump in, man. Matthew 24, 25, there's a lot there. But before we get into the scripture today, I need to somewhat set the table, right? So we believe, as a church, right? We believe that Jesus came to earth, that he lived a sinless life. We believe that Jesus came, that he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead three days later. This is the good news. And we believe that Jesus stood in the gap between a holy God and a sinful man. And that by believing in Christ, by putting your trust in Christ, that you can receive salvation. And that it puts you in right standing with God. We believe that Jesus is going to return and we believe that Jesus will make all things new. Amen? So like those disciples and every disciple since, we've all been living a life in waiting. 
And so because I can't walk through all of the parables, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask some questions that actually are drawn out of these parables, all right? The first one is, you know what, am I keeping watch for Christ? Am I keeping watch for Christ? You know, his second coming should be on our hearts and on our minds, right, in such a way that it doesn't cause us to stop what we're doing, but it affects what we do and how we think. When Christ is in your mind, you can't wait to see him like parents waiting for the birth of a child. You know, I regularly hear from those parents who are like, man, I've never loved somebody I haven't met so much, right? And they're so anxiously counting down the days until that baby comes. In similar fashion, are you that excited to see Jesus? Because if this isn't the case, consider what this might say about your heart. Consider what this might mean about your priorities and your passions, right? These are questions that we've got to ask ourselves. Am I keeping watch for Christ? Am I faithfully following Christ? Like, am I faithfully following Jesus even though I don't know when he's going to return, or am I going to be caught off guard? Jonathan Edwards, a a preacher and a philosopher from the 1700s, he put together a list of resolutions that he wanted to live by. And um, so uh, I have somewhat modernized these because most of us don't speak old English, right? So these are not his exact words, but this is definitely uh, the thought that he is conveying. The first one he says is, you know what, I'm resolved to never do anything that I'd be afraid to do of if it were the last hour of my life. The things that I'm saying, the things that I'm watching, the activities that I'm involved in are these things that when Jesus comes back, I would want him to see me doing. That's a tough question. I am resolved to never do anything that I'd be afraid to do if it were my last hour of my life. One of his others says, I'm going to ask myself every night as I'm going to bed, where have I been negligent? What sin have I committed? Where have I denied myself? And I'm going to evaluate myself every day, every week, every year. This dude does a lot of reflection, huh? He says, I'm going to ask myself at the end of every day, every week, every month, and every year, if I could have possibly done better. And then he closes it off, and he says, I'm resolved to life. Sorry. I'm resolved to live life as though I've already experienced the happiness of heaven and the torment of hell. What a perspective. Right? I'm going to live my life as though I've experienced the happiness of heaven and the torment of hell. Imagine living life with that as the filter that you see everything through. Am I trusting Christ? I know this question isn't about whether you responded to an invitation or if you have positive thoughts about Jesus, but are you actively trusting Christ every day, moment by moment? Am I trusting Christ? And finally, am I serving Christ with what he's given me? You know, this question's a little different than the rest, right? Because earlier questions were about watching and waiting. This question's about working. Right? What have you done with what Jesus has given you? 
How have you handled your money? How have you handled your home? How have you handled your family? How have you invested your gifting and your abilities? Am I serving Christ with what he's given me? So now we're going to dig into this final parable, right? The final part of this sermon. And in uh, my particular Bible, uh, over this passage, it actually says the final judgment. That sounds scary, right? The final judgment. Some of yours, it might actually say the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? So we're going to dig in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 31, and we're going to work our way all the way down to verse 46. Verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Serve the poor or go to hell. That's something I wish Jesus never said. Because there's a lot of times that I can think where I didn't serve the poor. Going to school in Chicago, the college I went to was on the North Shore, very, very wealthy. You take the L, you take the Metro, you jump down into the city, it's not quite as wealthy. And it seems like almost every corner you walk by, there's somebody asking, hey, would you be willing to buy this paper? Would you be willing to spare some change? Would you be willing to get me food? And this sounds so horrible, but when you start going downtown and you, you talk to folks that call downtown home, they say, if you don't make eye contact with them, they won't talk to you. How gross is that, right? But you learn that, and it's like, you know what, I don't want to be pestered by everybody that I walk by, so I'm just going to intentionally ignore them. And I found myself doing that when I would go downtown, right? I'm just like, hey, I've got a place to be. I've got something I'm going to do. Like, I'm out for a good day, right? I don't want to be pestered with what you want or what you need. Serve the poor or go to hell. Man, that's rough. 
But what if this teaching is far more about the fruit of our faith than the root of our faith? Let me say it again. What if this teaching is far more about the fruit of our faith than the root of our faith? You see, when has Jesus ever told us that we can gain right standing with God based on what we do? When has Jesus ever told us that your actions are the way, the truth, and the life? When has Jesus ever said that heaven is for good people that do good things? He didn't, because that's not the root of our salvation. But the way that we treat the poor displays the fruit of our salvation. You know, when I read this story, there's several things in my life that just kind of come to mind, right? Trinity, uh, going to school uh, in Chicago, spending a lot of time downtown, right? That's a part of it. But as soon as I graduated from uh, Trinity, uh, I ended up taking a job in northern Wisconsin, um, total culture shock, and uh, I worked at a camp called Silver Birch Ranch. And Silver Birch, at the time that I was employed there, uh, had like 70 to 80 horses, Okay, they had a decent amount of horses. And so uh, we had all sorts of these activities for campers, for retreaters. You could go out on the lake, right? We had ski boats. We had a ton of big inflatable toys you could crawl around on. We had a zip line. We had a climbing wall. We had paintball. We had all these activities, and we had horseback riding. And so the guy that oversaw the stables, his name was Ben, one of my coworkers, Ben Pierce, super solid guy, uh, but he loved animals, And so it seemed like every time that I would go out to the stables, there was a new kind of animal out at the barn, right? And so uh, I would walk out there, and you're walking to find Ben, and there's this huge woolly mammoth-looking cow uh, that's got crazy horns and, like, super shaggy hair. You're like, what is that, right? And he's like, oh, that's a Highlander steer. And the next time you go out, there's a chicken coop with, like, three billion chickens. And the next time I go out, we've got like miniature donkeys, right? The most annoying creature that God created, okay? <laughs> My house was two houses down from Silver Birch, and you would wake up, and you could hear that stupid thing, right, at like six in the morning. And then you would hear it again at lunch, and you would hear it again when you're going to bed, right? It's 10 at night, But that thing served a purpose, right? As annoying as it was, it serves a purpose, Right? So think about your family, right? As annoying as they are, they serve a purpose. <laughs> but one time I went out to the stables and I went to go meet Ben and uh, I oversaw program, which meant I, I oversaw all the activities like chapel, games, like literally summer camp. Okay? And so if there was an issue, I was involved. And so uh, I would go out and I would talk to Ben to find out, hey man, are we sending you enough campers? Do you have enough horses? Are we overwhelming you guys? Like, are you good? Like anything that you need, right? And we were giving feedback. And so I went out to go speak with Ben one day and I noticed all the wranglers are in a circle. And I'm like, oh man, he got another animal. Like, what did he get this time, right? And so I get out there and you hear all these oohs and ahs from all the girl wranglers, no offense to you. And I get up there uh, and there's two baby pygmy goats, There was some men out there awing, right? <laughs> Named Bert and Ernie, okay? Now, Bert and Ernie were incredibly cute until they got older, okay? And I would go out to the stables almost every day, right? One, because I needed to talk to Ben. Two, 
I had to ride a golf cart or a four-wheeler out there, right? So it was a good break from being in the office doing normal things. So I would go out to the barn, and uh, you had to walk through the barn quite a ways to typically find Ben, right? There was a massive pole barn, and there was hay stacked from the ground up to the rafters. And I learned very quickly that Bert and Ernie liked climbing all the way up to the rafters of this barn. And then I quickly learned that Bert and Ernie liked jumping from the rafters all the way down to the ground. And so just by the time you get to Ben or whoever you're trying to talk to and you're in the middle of a conversation, here comes one of them kamikazing their way down, like you're in like a world wrestling entertainment, like cage match, right? And they're just launching themselves. And I left the barn and thought to myself, I'm going to have to check my shorts on more than one occasion, right? I do not like things jumping out at me. My natural response is fight, not flight, Okay. And so on another instance, I'm out there and I'm shooting some video and I'm putting together promo videos for our different camp sessions and uh, I'm standing there and I'm, I'm recording video of campers getting on horses and Ben pulls up in his truck and next thing I know, here comes Bert tearing out of the barn and he's running as fast as he can, head down, ram straight into the side of Ben's truck. And he like backs up and is like all super dizzy and there's... There's a massive dent in the side of Ben's truck. And he gets out and he's like, are you kidding me? And it didn't take long before Ben realized it wasn't safe to have those animals around campers. And so uh, Bert and Ernie were replaced with Mary-Kate and Ashley. (laughs) And they were a lot more mild-mannered. But they like getting into things. You see, I'm I'm a city kid, right? I grew up in a neighborhood... And so for me, that means if you live in a neighborhood, you don't have livestock in your yard, right? And then I moved to Shelbyville, and I realized that's not necessarily the case. (laughs) But Bert and Ernie were my first experience with goats, right? And so when I read a story like this, it's kind of what I think of. I mean, to me, sheep and goats, they're like the same size. They kind of look the same. They kind of sound the same, but they're very different animals, aren't they? You see, sheep rely on a shepherd. Sheep need somebody to watch out for them. Sheep need somebody to defend them, to care for them. Goats, they're off doing their own thing, getting into whatever they want eating trash, jumping from the top hay bale. So when Jesus is telling the story of the sheep and the goats, he says, you know what? When the king arrives, he's going to sit in front of all the nations and he's going to separate them, sheep and goats. Those that need a shepherd, those that have claimed the need for a shepherd, Those that look to a shepherd for defending, that look to a shepherd for all that they need. And then you have the goats that say, I don't need you. I got this. I can take care of this all on my own. Spiritually speaking, the king is going to separate those that trust Christ and put their trust in Christ from those that trust in themselves. 
And according to this story, there's two outcomes, right? One, the blessed will inherit the kingdom. Two, the cursed will be sent to eternal fire. Now, I don't know if it's cartoons. It had to be cartoons. Like, that's the only way it's possible. But I have this image of hell, right? And I, I, maybe you guys don't have this picture, but I get this picture of, like, you go to hell, and you're in this little cage, right? And you're over a tiny little campfire, and Satan's, like, dancing around and, like, poking you with, right, his, his what's it called? Pitchfork. There we go. See, you're country folk. I don't know these things, right? So he's just, like, prancing around and giggling and, like, stabbing you, Right? What's interesting to me is you read this story and it actually says that hell was created for him. That hell isn't a place where the devil torments sinners. Hell is a place where he's tormented alongside sinners. Oh. Like imagine an eternity camped up next to that. The being whose desire is to keep you from God, the being whose desire is to lie and to deceive, to wreck and to destroy. How fitting that that's where the goats are going to go. And what strikes me is that this parable, right, the reaction to both the sheep and the goats, they say, Lord, when did we see you? Both of them say that. Lord, when did we see you? See, this parable is about gospel transformation, right? Genuinely redeemed people are concerned and they engage the poor because a saving faith reveals itself in a serving faith. Saved people serve people. Saved people serve people. You see, the sheep are so caught off guard, they're like, we were just doing what we thought we were supposed to do. Like, what do you mean? You're saying, like, you served, we served you when we did all these things. Like, we were just caring for these people. Right? The sheep are so caught off guard that the king would consider their service towards others as a service to him. And at the same time, the goats are so caught off guard because they're like, we've been sitting here waiting for you. We didn't see you go through any of that, or we would have jumped in. Jesus says, you know what, if you weren't willing to do that for the least of my brothers, you weren't willing to do that for me. Save people, serve people. In this parable, Jesus has identified himself with his people. When Jesus says, the least of these, my brothers, he's referencing other believers. Jesus is saying, you know what, when you're hungry, I'm with you. When you're thirsty, I'm with you. When you're naked, I'm with you. When you're in prison, I'm with you. When you're sick, I'm with you. And it's the responsibility of all of those that have put their faith in me to come and to care for you and to love you and to provide for you. Not to just sit around and wait. Loving this way isn't a qualification, it's evidence. No amount of theological study, no amount of morality, no amount of generosity is going to earn you a place in the kingdom of God. 
In this final sermon, Jesus has talked about watching and waiting and working in preparation of his return. And so church, as we wait for the return of Jesus, we need to wait as a people whose lives are so transformed by the gospel that they unselfish, unselfishly serve brothers and sisters in Christ. That as we wait for the return of Jesus, we need to wait as though we are people that have been so transformed by the gospel that we don't even consciously serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we get ready to respond, let's take a few minutes. Let's, let's evaluate where we're at, right? Like Jonathan Edwards, who took time to reflect, what do he say? Every day, every week, every month, every year, I'm going to sit and I'm going to reflect on where I'm at. This morning, let us take a couple minutes. Let us reflect, right? Am I keeping watch for Christ? Am I anxiously awaiting his return? Am I looking forward to it or am I more passionate about other things? Am I faithfully following Christ? Like moment by moment, am I driven by Christ or am I living a life the way that I want to? But I claim that I believed because I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. Following Christ isn't a one-time decision. It's an everyday decision. Am I faithfully following Christ? Am I trusting Christ? Every day, am I choosing to follow Jesus as not just my Savior, but also as my Lord? Am I serving Christ with what he's given me? Like, have I taken what he's given me and have I used it for myself or have I invested it into the kingdom? And finally, am I serving those that he's put around me? Am I serving my brothers and my sisters? Am I meeting their needs? Am I going above and beyond for them? And am I doing this just without even knowing it? Have I developed that type of fruit? It's where the concern of others is so great that I'm doing it as though I'm serving Jesus. How are you guys doing? I was talking to my wife the other day. It was yesterday, actually. I was like, man, I could never teach another sermon and I would be completely content in life. Because there's so much weight involved. Like, you guys are hearing this this morning, right? And this isn't a pity party, but every time somebody gets up to preach in front of a group of people, they've sat under this for a long time. There's a lot of weight involved. There's messages that you get up and you're like, man, I cannot wait to get up and share that. And then you've got the last two weeks where you're like, man, I don't want to get up there and tell people this. How are we doing as we wait for the return of Jesus? Because that's going to be a glorious thing. Amen? No more sickness. No more death. No more poverty. No more injustice. 
No more natural disaster. No more any of it. Are you anxiously awaiting that? Or are you more excited about other things? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this teaching. Thank you that we get to sit under it. Thank you that you've provided it to us to nourish us, to feed us, to challenge us. As Wayne Grudem says, the word of God reveals the heart of God. And God, if that's your heart, I pray that that would become mine too. I pray for all of us this morning that are here in the room or watching online that that every single one of us would take seriously the call to put our trust in you, that we would become sheep, that obey, that follow, that rely, that need you. And that those who would choose to do their own thing, that they would see what's coming and that they would turn away. Jesus, thank you for the good news. Thank you that you came, that you died, that you rose, that there's hope in that, that there's hope in your return, that there's hope in what is to come. I pray that we would be a church that anxiously awaits your return and that we live a life that honors them. In your name, amen.